Hello and welcome to Crime Theories of the Record, the podcast series where I talk about my interpretation of crime theories. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone and congratulations to my little sister who is graduating this week and congratulations to every other student graduating around the world. May this milestone be something you cherish and remember dearly. And if you're a student in America, don't forget you have a six-month grace period before you must begin paying your student loans. Shifting gears to Hagen's power control theory, I have to be completely honest with all of you as this theory wasn't really discussed as much in any of my theory classes that I took as As much as it was discussed in my gender and crime classes that I was able to take during undergrad and graduate school. The theory was introduced to me as a theoretical effort to explain the gender gap in offending and changes in such a gap over time. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I have done some research on the topic but don't consider myself an expert in every aspect of my field. For this episode, we're going to do a little bit of a time travel to consider the time period and the limitations that will entail regarding gender, though it is sad to admit that the field of criminology and criminal justice is best described as a male-white dominant field, it can be very much reflected in its research. So it is important to know that for this episode, gender is more reflective of sex and conservative gender roles unless explained otherwise. Now, with that being said, let's briefly introduce to you John Hagen, an American sociologist who focuses on criminology. As some of you have noticed, it is rare for me to cover someone who Who's still very much alive, but unfortunately, I have not had the pleasure to meet Dr. Hagen. So instead of reading his CV, I think I will just highlight some things that he has done. Dr. Hagen is a professor emeritus at Northwestern University and is the editor of the Annual Review of Law and Social Science. He developed an early interest in the social organization of subjective justice that is continued in his 2005 American Sociological Review article with Carla Shedd and Monique Payne on race, ethnicity, and perceptions of criminal injustice. Some of his articles and books present a power control theory of crime and delinquency. Power control theory also plays a role in other of his works. Off the record, this man has done some amazing research regarding poverty and crime, and maybe it's my personal bias, but he has studied some intense and interesting topics such as the collective dynamics of racial dehumanization and genocidal victimization. Now, for a bit of compare and contrast between Hagen's power control theory and Goffertson's and Hershey's perspective, I will be noting some of these things. First, Hagen 1989 contended that delinquency is more likely when a person has a preference for taking risks, an orientation that Goffertson and Hershey saw as essential to a lack of self-control. Second, both approaches believe that personal orientations, whether risk-taking or self-control, are established by the nature of parenting. In short, families are incubators for or precautions against criminal involvement. At this point, the two theories diverge. For Goffertson and Hershey, parenting is either good or bad, and this determines whether self-control is or is not inculcated. For Hagen, the critical issue is how the balance of power between parents affects the nature of parenting and in turn, risk preference and crime. That is, power relations between husbands and wives or partners, like I prefer to call them, shape how children are controlled 
hence power control theory. Hagen contended that in patriarchal families, parents exercise greater control over female children than over male children. The family, in effect, tries to reproduce gender relations in the next generation. Daughters are socialized to be feminine and to value domesticity, in short to prepare for their futures as homemakers. And sons are encouraged to develop boldness and to experience the world, in short, to prepare for their futures as breadwinners. Here, the result is that boys have stronger preference for risk-taking that in return increases their involvement in delinquency. Off the record, I have some really strong feelings about this theory and I cannot promise you that they're good. But when looking into how the nuclear family has evolved, my favorite pastime is to compare and contrast TV shows. Sometimes pop culture reflects prevailing concepts that we see in society or illustrates the way things were. And I wish I could just pick a show and show you, but I think it is important to see how sometimes you will rewatch a show and be baffled by the fact that it survived its time, especially when you see the racial, sexist, or homophobic undertones of the show. For instance, when I think about patriarchal families, I can either look inwards and look at some of my family members and see these behaviors play out or look at shows from the 90s that started shifting or disrupting, depending on your cup of tea, the patriarchal family structure. In egalitarian families, however, parents supervise female and male children more similarly. As observed by Hagen, 1989, mothers gain power relative to husbands, daughters gain freedom relative to sons. Again, parents tend to reproduce themselves. Daughters, not just sons, are seen as potentially entering the occupational arena as being equal partners in future relationships. Unlike girls, in patriarchal families, they are not socialized as fully into the cult of domesticity and are even given more latitude to engage in risky activities. The result is that daughters and sons risk preferences become more alike and therefore their rate of involvement in delinquency converges. And before you jump to conclusions or pondering about certain things, such as like what happens if I don't live in an egalitarian or patriarchal family, well, chill. For Higgins and control theory is meant to explain lower level crimes and looks at the family class structure and how it derives its power configurations from the occupational positions held by the spouses outside and inside the home. So following this drill of thought, criminality is an expression of masculinity for which men are trained, elevated, venerated, and paid yet also punished. However, considering the power shift of women joining the workforce post-World War II, which can be interpreted as resulting in women gaining power relative to their husbands and consequently daughters gaining freedom relatively to sons and off the record, I think it's necessary to revisit power control theory and look at its dynamic with today's context. But like any theory, power control theory has not been without its critics and may be indeed of some qualification. The perspective is amassing a fair amount of empirical support as a useful theory of delinquency, at least that's what most research from the 80s to early 2000s showed. Furthermore, the theory advances criminological thinking by illuminating the need to consider how gender-based power relations in society influence parental control and ultimately delinquent involvement. And if you want to take it a step further, you could see how gender-based power relations in tribal societies and other communities influence parental control and ultimately delinquent involvement. But we have to do a lot of work before getting there. Now, several considerations, however, have yet to be addressed systematically by power control theory. 
First, perhaps the theory principle limitation is that it remains largely silent on how other structural conditions affect the nature and effectiveness of parenting. In particular, which I can't emphasize enough, the theory must address the intersection of class and gender and must comment more clearly on how other types of power relationships in society affect crime. For example, the theory is unclear about how delinquency is affected by the parenting practices of single mothers or single parents within the context of impoverished communities. Second, and it's important to remember this, the perspective originally was developed more as an explanation of quote-unquote common delinquent behavior than as an explanation of chronic and or serious offending. But if a theory cannot account for the kinds of crime that most concern criminologists and policymakers, then its significance is decreased. And lastly, although empirical support for the theory exists, most studies have not tested the theory versus competing theories such as social learning theory and theories of individual differences such as low self-control theory. So, unless power control theory enters into such a theoretical competition, it will be unclear whether the effects of its variables are real or spurious. But if you're still interested in continuing to learn more about control theories, tune in next week for Titles Control Balance Theory. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode. Off the record, if you need help visualizing these theories, go check us up on Instagram at ct.offtherecord.com.